All right, Matthew 26, if you will. And we're going to pick here at verse 26 and uh, just kind of move through this little section here. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day that when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this passage is where uh, the Lord, uh, Schofield's note is, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And uh, really that term, Lord's Supper, is not here in the passage. It's rather introduced to us by Paul later. But this is a passage that gets great debate by people. Uh, it's a passage that is greatly misunderstood amongst most. And it's used in Christendom in a variety of ways. And uh, we're just going to spend the evening looking here at it and uh, just kind of going down through. If you'll notice verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And the critical thing here is the timing element involved in the passage. And uh, that's really what everybody gets uh, all heated up here is because there are people who believe that the Lord's Supper is really the Passover. And uh, then they attempt to say that they are eating the Passover together. Um, but, the, you know, if you go back up there to verse 17, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came. Uh, to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? So he sends them, they prepare the place, and they have the meal. Verse 20. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. But what you notice is, is nobody ever points out here the fact that when they say the Lord's Supper is the Passover, if you go back to Exodus 12, you see the posture that they are told to eat the Passover is not sitting at a table. It's rather standing up. They're standing up with their uh, go bag on, if you will, their traveling clothes, their shoes, their, their staff, they're ready to go. And that's how they were supposed to eat the Passover. And yet here, they're, they're sitting at a table having a meal. Uh, verse 21, and as they did eat... He said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Verse 26, and as they were eating. So the, the meal is involved here. It's, there, there are things that are happening here. And, and, and it's an interesting thing that as we go through this, really the timing of it, and it gets kind of confusing. If you look back up at verse 21, he says, And as they did eat, he said... Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. So Judas Iscariot is present at the meal. He, he, he comes over to John. When you come over to John and Luke, you'll find that Judas does not leave the company until after all of this is done. Okay? Come over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John 13, verse 30. John 13, 30. He, and that's Judas, 
then having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So Judas is there, he's in the meal, he receives the sop, and then he leaves. Uh, come over to Luke, or back to Luke 22. Luke 22. So when you think about, begin to kind of think about what's going on here, it's not always what it's cracked up to be what all the preachers say. And there's actually a lot of, lot of different things happening. Uh, look at Luke 22, look at verse 14. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. So Judas is there. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, you know, there, they take, there's, uh, there's a, some folks that believe that instead of, you know, passing out, you know how you, we used to do it in tradition with the little plate with the little pieces, that they actually pass a whole loaf out and people break off a piece and they use these verses to say that. Verse 18, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come in. He took the bread, and he took bread, and gave, it, gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. That's the only place in the gospel that that phrase, this do in remembrance of me, shows up. It doesn't show up in Matthew, it doesn't show up in Mark, it doesn't show up in John. It shows up here with Luke. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. So Judas was there, okay? So Judas... Iscariot took the so-called sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Then he goes out and betrays Christ, gets paid off, <laughs> felt bad about it, goes back to the priest and confesses his sins and throws them, gives the money back, okay, to get his sins taken care of. Or, and, but yet he still did what? Died and went to hell. He's, <laughs> so... All that religious activity didn't get Judas off the hook, and guess what? It, it won't get anyone else. So when you're dealing with people here, uh, this is a great one of those passages to, to kind of remember, remind them that uh, Judas did everything that religion says to do, and he still died, and he still went to hell. Verse 20. Again, notice the supper, the, the take, what is called the Lord's Supper, takes place before Judas left. And that's important, and uh, it's important to recognize that. Verse 20, Likewise also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is a New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So if they're taking the bread and the cup after supper, then the indication is that they have the Passover supper and then after the Passover, he takes the bread and the cup, and he does those things. And again, there are people that are going to argue and get all upset about this, and that's just too bad because 
of the issue of the chronological, the, chrono, the chronology here doesn't always add up to how people want to think. And that's honestly going to be how it is because of how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are depicting. Each writer is focusing on a different aspect of the cross work of the Lord. And, and so there's going to be some differences here on the, their presentation of it to Israel and so forth. If you look at, back up there at verse 15, notice he says, And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you, when? Before I suffer. If you come over to John 19. John 19. So uh, he's going, they're eating the Passover a little early, early than Passover was. I mean, they're eating it on the 14th, but they're doing it in, in the evening time. In the evening, okay? But, um, again, if you have to remember how Israel counts their day, it starts at 6 p.m., so from 6 to 9, they're eating the meal here early on the 14th. He's going to be killed during the day, and then the regular Passover and all that gets taken care of later because they want him off the cross and all of those events. So look at John 19, look at verse 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said unto, saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Verse 30, and when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation for what? For the Passover, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath day was a high day. So it's the beginning of the, the, the seven-day feast of the unleavened bread. So the Passover was on the 14th. Then the 15th through the 22nd day, those, so the 14th is Passover, and then you got 15, 16, you got Sabbath days there, holy days, high days, he says. And literally what happens here is that when Christ dies, he dies on the day of the preparation. That's what John 19 saying there, which would be the 14th day of the month. And that's the day when they go out and they, you know, they've been hold, they pick the lamb, he's been isolated out, then they go out and kill him. Then in the evening, when it begins, you know, the 14th and the 15th day there at sundown, then again they go out they, and so forth. So come back there to Luke 22. Right, well, go back to Matthew 26. Again, when you begin to... Luke twenty two fifteen. there, he says, look, guys, I want to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So if, if he eats with them before he suffer, can he eat with them in the evening on the 15th? No, he's, he's dead. He's, he's dead. He has to eat with them on the night of the 14th, but he calls it Passover, see, and that's where the confusion gets in. Everybody starts trying to line up the dates and all this stuff, you know. Um, and when that happens, then you, <laughs> you quickly throw out common sense and you get off into some other things. So when you, when you think about this issue here of when, he, when they're, they're eating, 
he eats a special meal with the apostle. Apostles, sorry. Then he dies and is buried. And then after 6 p.m. on the, which would be the 15th evening there, the, then the nation of Israel, the Jewish Passover takes place. Look at, back to Matthew 26, look at verse 17. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? They come to him, they come in around 6 p.m. on the 14th. And they want to know where he wants them to prepare to eat the Passover. They're thinking that they are going to eat in the evening of the 15th. Where do you want us to get the pre preparation done and ready? And he tells them, but what he does is he says, we're not going to eat the 15th, we're going to eat here on the 14th. So there's a timing issue that's got to take place here and all that. So you, you've got to come in thinking about the timing. Uh, come over to Mark 13. When you think about the chronological events of the, Lord, of the life of the Lord and everything, you know, uh, he, he serves thir three years and then he dies and so forth. And then like there in Luke 13, he, he says, I've been working at this tree for three years Give me another year with it and so forth. Mark writes here about Christ as the servant. That's our next book, by the way. And when he does, he just gives all the details, all the actions, all the activity. But Mark actually forms the best basis of the chronological issues of the life of Christ. Look, if you will, at Mark 13 and verse 35. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what the master of the house cometh at even at, or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning. So you've got evening, even, then you've got midnight, you've got the cock crowing, and then you've got morning. And what happens is, is the evening hours runs from 6 to 9 p.m., 9 to midnight, okay, and then midnight to 3, and then 3 to 6. And that's how their evening works out. The night is divided up that way. Verse, chapter 14 of Mark, verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover, and of the unleavened bread. So we're right here where we're at in Matthew 26. Okay? Two days before the Passover. Verse 12. And the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? So again, that's right where we're at. So they're going to go over here and they're going to start... Right here, getting ready. Okay? Just kind of think this through. Verse 17. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. So the evening hour, him and the twelve show up and they start eating. Again, Matthew 26 is where we're at. They start eating. He comes in the room. They're going to eat the meal between six to nine. They're having the meal during the first watch of the night. Verse 26, 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. See how he says this night? So now we're moving here into the midnight hours. Now they're going to go out here and there's, they're going to be offended. They're going to go and, and do. Verse 30. And Jesus said unto him, that's Peter, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow uh, twice, thou shalt deny me three times. So now we've moved over here into the cock crowing. Here's Peter, okay? And uh, actually you have the garden and you've got the trial as it happens and all this going on. And they move in and, and Peter does that. Now come down to verse 68. 68. But he denied, saying, I know not. This is Peter. Neither understood I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch and the cock crew. Verse 72. And the second time the cock crew, and Peter called to mind uh, the word that Jesus had said unto him, Behold, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went, and when he thought therein, he wept. So some time-wise, where, where are we? We know we're at, the cock crowing. We're in this midnight to 3 a.m. time. Now, 15.1. And straightway, where? In the morning, now we're at Pilate. They bring him to Pilate. Okay? And uh, straightway in the morning, the, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. So when you come back to Matthew 26... You can kind of see where we're at uh, timing-wise here. These events take place all in one evening from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Now he's going to go to Calvary. There's going to be, a, you know, Rome's got him. And then he ends up sitting there on the cross. Now come back to Matthew 26. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We've done this in Luke and in John. We'll do more of it when we go through Mark 13 and so forth. But when he says here, as they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood. You see... You got all of this going on. This event happens during the meal or shortly at its, to its conclusion. Growing up, we, did, we had the Lord's Supper where they, communion, I should say, where they pass around the plate and everything. We called it the, the Lord's snack because it wasn't enough to, you know, get, fill you up. So obviously he's doing something here that's, that is more than just Hey, oh, by the way, let's do this. It's interesting, by the way, that in Scripture, after the Lord is dead, buried, and gone, you do not see the little flock do this event at all. You, you don't, I mean, and they have Passover. There's going to be a whole other year before the interruption with Paul. They don't have the Passover at all here. So 
when he says that, when he holds up the bread and says, this is my body. Now, he's not saying that the bread literally is his flesh, otherwise he's pulling off flesh, okay? He, basically, what he's talking about here is this represents my body, and it's going to be broken for you. And where he breaks the bread, when he breaks the bread, it isn't Calvary, it represents Calvary. Because these guys live and operate and function in a, uh, a shadow of the real thing to come. So he's looking at them and he's like, look guys, here's where I'm at, here's what's going to happen, and off you go. Now you have the great Roman Catholic doctrine, transubstantiation, where they say that when the priest rings the little bell, the bread literally becomes the body, and the cup the wine in the cup literally becomes the blood and you know all of that goes on and that's just blaspheme it's just religion to get you to go and actually if you really talk to them and everything the next thing you know if they have to do too many masses they end up being drunk <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so you have to pay attention to it and so forth now as far as when he says this is my blood of the New Testament. You know he's not talking about it literally because in Genesis 9, I'll write these up here. Did I lose my, I did put it back, didn't I? No? So in Genesis 9 verse 4, before the law, it says you can't eat blood. Okay, Leviticus 3, got to look at that note again, verse 17 is in the law, also verse 7, chapter 17 and verse 10. And the, under the law, guess what? No blood. Then in Acts 15... And verse number 20 and 29, after the law. So we're in the dispensation of grace. Guess what? Can't eat blood. Okay? So you know, so the path... So before the law, Genesis 9, under the law, Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 17, and after the law and under grace, Acts 15, you're forbidden to drink blood. So the drinking of blood is forbidden before the law, under law, and after the law, so the Lord wouldn't be giving them literal blood. Okay, He's actually looking at them and saying, this is a picture of what I'm about to go and do. Uh, come back there to Luke 22. Luke 22. So he, it's, uh, it's something that he's doing here. Luke 22, verse 19. Luke 22, 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Watch now. This do in remembrance of me. When you do something in remembrance of someone, it's called a memorial. Okay? 
I found out yesterday that my best friend from high school dropped over dead, 51, heart attack. They're going to have a funeral or a wake Thursday, tomorrow. They're going to have a funeral Friday. It's going to be live streamed and so forth because of COVID and everything. But it, we usually talk about having a memorial. We begin to remember things about and so forth. If you come to 1 Corinthians 11, the great passage here where Paul brings this into, into, into us, verse 23. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I understand people pitch fits about the body of Christ doing it, and I'll be honest with you, those who do that and those who say we shouldn't be doing it and they get all upset. If you look close enough or understand their background, nine out of ten of them are former Roman Catholics. And a former Roman Catholic, I understand, they understand the communion to be something that's blasphemous. I got it. But, what you, but you're not that any longer. You're a new creature. You've got a new identity. You've got new stuff going on. And let's live and re rejoice in that. I was answering questions yesterday and, and I made a comment, it wasn't about the Lord's Supper, but why in the world would you want to take away a, a wonderful time to remember something, and, or remember Christ in Calvary? Verse 23, though, he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Now, I don't know how you can mess that up, but they do, because I read the verses on the page, and what does it say? Paul says, I have received of the Lord part of my due time testify moment, which also I delivered unto you. So he says, so who's the you there? The church, the body of Christ. I'm bringing it, the Lord gave it to me, and I'm giving it to you. And, and again, <laughs> I read that and I go, it is clear and plain to me. But again, people like to read into things and make things say what they want to say. And he says that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup which he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. We're not repeating it. He isn't dying again. We're just doing what? Showing forth, demonstrating it. Okay? Memorializing it. Having, having a, a memorial. That's the case there. So when you think about, and we look here in Matthew and in other places about the communion or the Lord's Supper, actually Paul calls it the Lord's Table. He calls it the Lord's Supper too, but he also calls it the Lord's Table. You begin to really quickly understand that people have, religion has, I should say, different viewpoints on this. You have the Roman Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation. That view is where they have the Mass, and they believe that they are literally re-sacrificing the Lord Jesus Christ. They ring the bell, and when the bell rings, the wine turns to, to blood, and the, and the bread literally turns to flesh. So it's literal flesh and literal blood. By the way, that's called cannibalism. Okay, And that's the 
that is one viewpoint. There's like five of them here. <laughs> That's the viewpoint of Rome. When the Protestant Reformation came on the scene, Luther rejected the literal presence of Christ. In, he, when he, he would look at the bread and say, it's just bread. He would look at the wine and say, it's just wine. So what he developed was a, what was called consubstantiation. Trans means over. Con means with. So what Luther taught and what the Lutheran church teaches today is consubstantiation, which means with and under the presence around the emblems, the elements. Emblems is a better word, okay? So, the, because an emblem is a representation. I'm redoing my 58, my pickup truck, and I'm looking for some things, and I ran across an emblem that I, uh, so it represents the truck, and, and some thing, it represents Chevy, actually. It's a winged bird, it's a, it looks like an airplane, it's set on the, on the hood, but it doesn't sit on a 58, it sits on a 57. But I like it. So guess what? It might be on my hood. <laughs> but the thing is, is it's an emblem, and it represents that. So what they begin to say is that these, the elements that, uh, that are consecrated, it's still bread, but there's a spiritual presence of Christ with the bread. Okay? And uh, he doesn't believe that they, that... Uh, the bread became the, uh, Luther. I'm talking about, but rather he said that that uh, they they that when the priest consecrates it, it's the words of Christ that come in with the bread. It's a spiritual presence that happens there. John Calvin, same idea. There, there's actually a guy. Uh, I'm sorry, not John Calvin. Uh, his name is Zwingli. Zwingli, yeah, I got bzz, you know, Zwingli. And what Zwingli held to is what Paul taught, which was a memorial service, a memorial, okay? So when you think about Luther, think about Zwingli, but John Calvin didn't buy into Luther's viewpoint completely, but he didn't also buy into Zwingli's viewpoint, so he kind of had one in the middle between the two. So you have that viewpoint. More modern today, you have the Plymouth Brethren viewpoint. They believe it is a memorial, but they call, and they call it breaking bread, and they say every place you run in Acts and stuff where they break bread, that they say that every time you see that, it's communion. And in reality, it's just having a meal together, okay? But they, so that brethren call it the breaking, uh, breaking of the communion bread, the problem is, is their communion is a closed communion. Only they are allowed to say who gets to take it, take part of it, and not. And again, you've got to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 over there. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So the communion table is not a judgment table. And unfortunately, the Plymouth Brethren make it that way. Okay, it's not a table of judgment where I'm going to judge you, you judge me, and we judge each other. Rather, it's a table of fellowship. And it's the Lord's table where all of his children come, again, as unworthy as we all are, 
And we come and we partake in a memorial that, that, that demonstrates our oneness. Rather than being a judgment issue, it's a fellowship, so you have that. Then you have, it is a communion, exactly, exactly. Then you have the Quaker and the Salvation Army view. And the Quakers and the Salvation Army do not practice water baptism. They do not practice the Lord's Supper. And uh, they pitch a fit about it. They, um, William Booth, who started the Salvation Army, was greatly influenced by E.W. Bullinger there in England. And he came to some dispensational issue, uh, truths. And uh, he does, they don't believe that either. Uh, they teach that it's not a physical uh, observation, but a spiritual observation. Uh, they use John 6 over there, where he says, I'm the living bread, I've come down, and, and uh, if any man eat of this bread, he'll live forever. So it's a spiritual issue. Then there's Paul's viewpoint, the Pauline method, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11 there, and where it is a memorial. And again, I realize that people don't like that. They want to have their way. You know, here we have, a, we, have a, we have a meal and so forth with COVID. It's a little different. I've been thinking about it. We're going to do some things a little different, I think, and have something in that. But do a little, have a memorial, but do it a little differently than sitting at a meal because of everything. And the thing that you have to remember when you talk about the Lord's table, Lord's Supper, Communion, especially in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul would have, let me say it this way, there is no way that the Apostle, that the Apostle Paul would have ever told the Corinthians to keep the Passover at Corinth. Okay? There's no way that Paul would have told, ever told the Corinthians or the church, the body of Christ, to keep the Passover there at Corinth. See, people say that the Lord's Supper is the Passover. Because Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, you're going to do the Passover, you've got to go to Jerusalem. And Paul would have known. Paul, he's the great Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless concerning the law. He knew the law better than you and I. I think we know it. He did know it. And the only place that the Passover could be kept is in Jerusalem. And the book of Deuteronomy is clear on that. So Paul would have never told the Corinthians, I'm delivering the Passover for you to keep it here at Corinth. Rather, he says, "Here, this is a new memorial that Christ gave concerning his cross work. And as a body, as a members of the body of Christ, you and I share... And this, I think, is what, again, what people don't get. They, and I bang my head up against the wall, figuratively, not literally, that people don't understand this. As members of the body of Christ, you and I share a memorial to the cross with the nation of Israel because the destinies of both the body of Christ and Israel are inseparably linked to that one event, the cross. We share the cross in common. Everything that God has purpose to do finds its basis in the blood that Jesus Christ shed at Calvary, the blood that Christ calls the blood of the New Testament. So we're 
inseparably linked with that cross and the work of the cross. And uh, we have to remember that. Come over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. You, Revelation 1, look at verse 5, if you will, the, toward the end of the verse. He says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, Paul doesn't write that. That belongs to the nation of Israel. That actually, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, that, actually, that little phrase actually sat at the, on the back wall at Shorewood in the old building, in the, uh, in the Norwood building on Neva and Grace. And you'd read that and you'd go, man, that's wonderful. And it is wonderful, and it is what happened to us. But it's in Revelation 1, verse 5. It belongs to who? It belongs to Israel, as John wrote it, but it also impacts you and I. Come over to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Christ's blood is the very basis of the kingdom program. Now, it, it's progressively revealed and during the times in history where you're in the earthly ministry of Christ, go back to Matthew 26, that's where we're at. Those time, he hasn't yet revealed the fact that his blood at Calvary is going to be shed and be the basis of the kingdom. That gets revealed later. Okay? And again, this is where right division keeps the crooked road straight, if you will. If you think you're a part of the little flock or believing remnant, you're going to be over in Revelation looking at things that don't belong to you. No sinner ever got any right standing before God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, that's what Romans 3 tells us, the forbearance of God and declaring the righteousness of the, of the past and so forth. Uh, uh, Romans 3 there, verse 25, it's, it's clear but what happens is, is you come into a passage, back to Matthew 26 here, and uh, people like to run with it and make it say stuff it ain't saying and, and yank it out of here and put it on us. And yet Paul says, wait a minute, I received it of the Lord. I'm, what I'm giving to you is going to be, it's a memorial service, guys. Verse, look, if you will, at verse 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I mean, he's going to begin now to unfold the issue of his blood for them. Uh, over there in Luke 24, verse 44, where he says everything that the, that the law and the prophets and Psalms wrote concerning me, he opens their eyes of understanding that they might understand the scripture that's after the resurrection. We're familiar with that. He opens their eyes so they can understand how he had to go suffer and be raised again. And he begins to unfold them for them the purpose of, of his cross in the prophetic program. In Acts 2 and 3, you see Peter talking about it and doing and understanding that. Peter didn't understand it before Calvary. It's after Calvary. It's after the resurrection. It's our, just prior to 
his ascension where he spends the 80, 40, 80 days, the 40 days with them and gets them going. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Who's the many? Well, obviously it's Israel. That's the passage is focused on Israel. He's Israel's savior. He came uh, to save his people for their sins. It's Israel. That's the only way to read that. Paul comes in and he says, you know, now, the but now, the due time, to be testified in due time, I'm ordained the apostle, the preacher and the apostle. The due time now says that he died for all men. A further progression of the revelation. Paul's the due time testifier of the fullness of what was accomplished. And with Paul, you have the fullness of the revelation given. He's that capstone of, of progressive revelation. So back here, you have the beginning stages of that, of those revelations of what's going to be transpiring on the cross. Literally, here in Matthew 26, we're in the shadow of the cross. And again, he's talking to Israel, and he's telling them how the cross is going to fit in their program. And we progress through it that way. It's very important, it's very appropriate, I should say, that we share together with Israel a memorial which points to the cross because that's what he's doing here. And again, when you study in Acts and you see, all, you see that it fit, where it fit prophetically, and then you come to Paul and you get the explanation of what it all means, then for them, they get over in the Hebrew epistles, which is written in the light of Paul's revelation, and it just all comes together to where Israel can understand the application of the cross work. So you've got transubstantiation, consubstantiation, closed communion, a spiritual presence, and so forth, and you have to remember that it's, Paul says for you and I today, it's a memorial. Now, come back over with me to 1 Corinthians 10 and notice something very interesting here that in the conversation about the communion and the Lord's table, Lord's supper is never talked about. It's actually just skipped right over. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. Because oh, why is there all that confusion out there? 10:20 but I say, Paul says here, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. You see, Satan has a counterfeit of the communion of the Lord's table. And the reason for all the commotion and the confusion out there is because when look at what Satan's doing. Let's take, he's taking the one event that is a memorial to the cross, the activity of Calvary for both houses, wings of the house, and he's muddied the water and confused it. And men, instead of checking their IDs at the door, if you will, they come in and say, no, it's not us because it belongs, da, 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 da. And it's like, wait a minute. Paul says 
I received it, and I'm giving it to you. Well, no, Rick, you can't say that because that, that, that's just not what, that's not the same thing as 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It says that to me. <laughs> it says the same things on my pages. So when you come back to Matthew 26, the confusion out there, honestly, the, those that are in the confusion are, are those ministers that uh, Satan is using to confuse the, the thing. Over there in first, or 2 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the workers of Satan, he's talking about men who preach and teach and who do. He's not talking about down the bartenders. He's talking about men in the pulpit who have a bent because of a religious background. They've allowed that confusion to come on into the grace that they're supposedly standing for. All right, Matthew 26, 28. So he says here, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. The verse to have written down there is 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 to 7, where Paul says that we now know that Christ gave himself a ransom for all. And again, that's going to go back to chapter 20 with the many and verse 28 there where he talks about he gave himself a ransom for many. He's a, he is a limited redeemer with a limited redemption. But now through Paul, with the capstone of the progressive revelation, we see that the fullness of the revelation, we now know that the blood of Christ is the foundation for both programs. And uh, it's progressively revealed th through Paul, and now it impacts, and how we now know how it impacts everyone. So Matthew 26, 28, let's look at the New Testament issue, because that's a big one. Boom, you know. First of all, this is my blood. He's not talking about a literal blood. He's talking a representation, which is shed for many. That's Israel for the remissions of sin. By the way, when do they get their remissions of sins? In the kingdom. Acts 3 is clear. The time of refreshing shall come. Then you're going to have your sins blotted out. So now, he's, now he says, for this is my blood of the New Testament. What he's, he's saying that the blood that he's going to shed at Calvary is the blood that's going to ratify the new covenant. Come back with me to Exodus 24. Okay? Exodus 24. The blood that he's going to shed at Calvary is what's going to ratify the new covenant. Exodus 24. Um, and notice that this is almost identical terminology that Moses uses when he institutes and ratifies the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. God gave Israel the law and the commandments in Exodus 24 here. They're going to have a ceremony where they enter into the covenant, into the agreement. Exodus 24, 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, sat, he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. There you go, right? 
And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Hebrews 9 over there, he talks about, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm ahead of myself, so let's not go. So he ratifies the covenant with the shedding of blood. He's do Christ says, this is the, my blood, which I'm going to go shed. It ratifies the new covenant. Same thing Moses did. Exodus, by the way, did... When the Mosaic, when did the Mosaic Covenant take effect? Here in 24? No. 29. Chapter 29 of Exodus and verse 1. 29 1. They didn't start operating it until Exodus 29. 29 1. And this is the thing that thou shalt do to them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office. He tells them, you take the priest, you go out, you wash them, you anoint them. Okay? In Acts chapter 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized. So go get washed. You'll be anointed with the Holy Ghost, the anointing. The ministry in the Pentecostal days is, what he's saying is, is we got the blood shed at Calvary, ratified the new covenant, Let's go get it. Let's go get going in it. And there's a delay there. Come over with me, back with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 16. You have to remember this. Hebrews 9 16. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. So could the New Testament be in force before Christ died? No. So when we're reading here in the book of Matthew is really where? Old Testament. The New Testament is not ratified until the blood was shed and it isn't going to be put into effect until the people are washed and anointed and that's going to end up being at the second coming. And in Matthew, we've already been through that timeline up to this point. Look at Hebrews 8. Look at verse number 8. Hebrews 8 and verse number 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people, and they shall not teach. Look at what's... Uh, what's going? They're not. They shall not teach every man. Um, every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest." That's going to take place out there in the millennium when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the face of the earth, like he, he says he's going to. That's when the new covenant goes into effect and begins to operate. So just like Moses ratifies the old in Exodus 24, doesn't really start till Exodus 29, okay? Christ sheds his blood 
ratifying the new, but it doesn't get started till the Acts period. Okay? And it's put into effect, but then stopped when we changed the program, when he changed the program. And when Christ comes back, they're going to pick right up where they left off, and they're going to move on in. Okay? Now, come back to Matthew 26, and it's about time to, to quit. Matthew 26. By the way, when Paul says, we are the ministers of the New Testament, he says that over to the Corinthians. People say, oh, see, look, man, Rick, we're doing this. We've got to be doing that. And it's like, wait a minute. What does the New Testament minister? Okay, that's, that is the question. Hold on here. Come back to Jeremiah 31. What does the New Testament minister? First of all, the new co- the, if you want to find the New Testament, the New Covenant in the Old Testament, this is Jeremiah 31. <laughs> that's the old joke, okay? Je- Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 34. And they shall teach no man every, uh, shall teach no more every man his brother, and every man his uh, I'm sorry, every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What does the what does the new covenant minister? Their sins are forgiven, and their sins are no longer remembered. Well, what do you and I preach when we preach the gospel? Same thing. Your sins are forgiven, and, they're, and, you, and because you are justified, you have peace with God. So when Paul says we're the ministers of the New Testament, people freak out. I'm amazed. And it's like, wait a minute. The basic elements of the New Covenant are what? I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. (laughs) Well, what does he do for you and I? Same thing. The cross does this for Israel just as it does it for you and I. Okay? Now, come back to Matthew 26. We'll have to pick back up because of time here and uh, look at what's in the cup that he's going to drink. But I say unto you, I will not drink, hence uh, verse 26. Uh, eight, uh, verse 29 there, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day. So we'll look at that next time. I, what I want you to notice is verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. The hymn that they sing is the, holla, the, the Hallelujah Psalms. Literally, they sing Psalms 115 to 118. That's what they're singing. Uh, it's called the Halle, H-A-L-L-E-L, Halle, okay? And at the end of Psalms 118, it, in verse 27, it says, Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. And that's exactly where we're at here with Christ. They're going to bind him, and they're going to put him up on the altar. So they're singing right there, okay? Well, the hour's up, so we'll... We'll look at the issue of the cup and what's in the cup and then kind of move on down. I don't want to drag our feet through here with this, so I think we've said a good deal about it. But a tremendous passage, a tremendous look of what Christ is telling and teaching. He's in the upper room with these guys. It's just the 12, and he's going through things. And, and for 
that day when he is die, going to die and what's going to happen. By the way, if you think about this thing here, the Lord's been up since over here. When they go into the garden, they, he's been up a long time. They go into the garden, no wonder Peter and the boys fell asleep. <laughs> it's an early, you know, that midnight hour hit them, and they were, boom. But uh, anyway, all right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the study and for the look here into the word and, and to look at the great memorial that you have given here and the great purpose of what Calvary was going to accomplish for the nation of Israel. In your name we pray, amen.